G'day there, guys and girls, and welcome to the next episode of the Finnovator. And for this one, I'm diving into the kit bag from uh, from years past, but I want to because it's super, super relevant. Uh, Charles Badenack uh, is a gentleman I had the great privilege of uh, traveling around Australia during one of the AFA events. I think it was the AFA Gen X event. Uh, and anybody, if you spent time with Charles, you'll know that not only he's he got a really interesting background and story, but as well as that, he's one of these people who's very good at telling his own story and frankly, promoting his personal brand without coming across all douchey. Uh, I think I've seen a lot of people, particularly since this, uh, since this conversation with Charles, and you see them do their marketing and it's all about them and how amazing they are, how they've worked with a thousand clients. And you know that in this world where genuineness is, is supposed to be so uh, valued that it's just about as far from genuine as you can get, right? Well, Charles is one of these guys who's just managed to do it with a little bit of class. And when I ran this session, uh, one of the th- memorable things he used to t- say in front of people that he's just, a, just an ordinary guy. And Charles is in many ways an ordinary guy, but some of the things he does and the way he goes about promoting himself uh, makes him far from ordinary. Uh, we in this podcast talked about everything from the really smart strategy he had for utilizing a book he wrote and getting it out there. Uh, he talks a lot about the importance of getting involved in community things. He talked about uh, a specific bunch of activities he done uh, did during Christmas. Uh, which made him a real, um, I guess if you want to use the word micro-celebrity, and I don't mean that in an uh, offensive way, but I mean, in, a, in, in other words, becoming a celebrity, a well-known and a leading figure in your community, well, there's some real gold in here. I think a lot of these days, we're always looking for the quick fix, you know, getting the social media campaign or the Facebook ads or all that stuff that's going to get you in front of people. But I think what Charles uh, shared in this, which I think is just as relevant now as it was when we ran it, is sometimes... Uh, the best way to build traction is to build relationships in your personal community and give people the opportunity um, to get to know you and uh, get in front of them and be part of that. And I think this comes up in spades. I hope you really enjoy this uh, sort of pull from the archives. I, I, I know I did, and I got a lot of lot of enjoyment listening to it once again. So without a shadow, without a shadow of a doubt, without the delay, let me hand over to Charles, uh, where he's going to talk about personal branding. One of the benefits that the internet has given us is uh, something called the long tail. You know, if you wanted to take an interest in a specialist subject uh, a while ago, uh, it was kind of hard to find people who shared your view. And certainly, for example, if you're searching for a book on something, uh, something niche, you know, it was kind of difficult to find. But the internet has been meant, meant that it's been able of different people of different interests to congregate together and created lots of tribes out there, you know, the world of tribes. And the benefit of this is whatever you do, whether you're an advisor, a mortgage broker, an accountant, or something else, it's led to what we call the rise of the micro-celebrity. In other words, it's very possible using smart marketing techniques to become really well-known to those people within a very specific niche, even though people outside of that niche may not know who you are. And that's exactly what today's guest, Charles, has done. Uh, let me give you a background of Charles, because he is uh, he's quite an extraordinary person. I'm, I actually had the opportunity to travel around Australia with Charles God, was it about a year, maybe two years ago? Um, and the one thing Charles constantly says is that he's just an ordinary bloke. And I, I, you know, I, I think uh, Charles is very, very humble about what he does because he's, uh, for an ordinary bloke, he's had some extraordinary achievements. Uh, you know, over the last 12 years, Charles has spoken at national conferences, schools, universities, public forums, businesses, on, uh, and various different things. He's written a self-help financial book called Old Head on Young Shoulders. He actually made the national bestsellers list, something I'm very jealous of. 
Uh, he regularly writes industry publications and he's won numerous awards, including uh, Innovator of the Year in 2014 in the IFA Excellence, Money Management Australian Financial Planner of the Year in 2011, uh, as well as Financial Planning uh, Association Awards, Financial Standard Awards, Future 2 Community Service Awards, State Runners Up in the FPA Certified Financial Planner, and a whole bunch of other things, as well as holding numerous external board and advisory positions. So uh, Charles is not only a great planner, he's been recognized all around the industry as such. So I'm really looking forward to sort of uh, getting down to it and, and finding out. Dude, how are you this morning? No, going well, going well. All pumped, really. So good day, Friday, all good. So you've been up at five o'clock, you've taken the dog for a walk, you've ridden 30 k's there and back, and uh, now sort of uh, is sort of mid-morning mid for you, really, isn't it? Yeah, and no, I like to start early. Um, like sort of a lot of guys in their sort of early 40s, at a bit of a midlife crisis, and we sort of ride a bike a few mornings a week with a few guys. It's, it's a good way to start the day. It is indeed. It is indeed. I love cycling. The way they look as they zip, zip past me in the morning. That's about as far as I get. But, I'm normally at the rear, mind you, so uh, particularly up the hills. That's a smart place to be because you're behind someone else. There's a bit of uh, you know slingshot, shake and bake, that sort of stuff. I feel kind of silly asking this, but um, if there's anybody out there who isn't uh, intimately sort of familiar with you and what you do, do them, do, us a, do them a quick favor and just give us a quick uh, quick over who you are, what you do, and, and, and who you help. Okay, well, look, we, um, we set up a boutique. My business partner and I, Rebecca Ferguson, we left the uh, cozy corporate cubicle about three and a half years ago. Um, had to sit out to, on gardening leave for six months and we, um, we basically worked in a room together and tried to sort of map out the sort of business that we would want to work in and really sort of try and create something that if we were clients, we'd want to go and see. So then we sort of uh, kicked off in June 2014. We've been going about three years. Uh, we've got eight of us now. Um, we've uh, got three ARs, five support staff um, and, and the growth trajectory has been pretty good and I suppose what we've um, tried to do is... Um, you know, create a business we really enjoy going to and um, have a passion for and, and also the staff enjoy coming to work. So um, it's good being able to create your own culture and, um, and workplace. Beautiful. And do you work with any particular type of uh, client, any particular area or, or is it general sort of... Uh, um, I suppose like most advisors out there, we, we deal with the financial delegators, um, but also the busy professionals. Um, okay. You know, whilst we call ourselves Main Street, we kind of, it's a bit of a play on words in a sense and... Yeah, potentially the name may not work in, in Melbourne or Sydney, but we do tend to work at the pointy end of the market here locally. Okay. And have you always been a Hobart regular or did you do the smart thing and get out of uh, one of the major cities? Well, I sort of backpacked for a couple of years um, in the 90s, um, came back, sort of um, worked as a commercial lawyer for sort of four or five years, uh, but just didn't really have a passion for it. So I did the uh, financial planning studies more out of interest than anything else and realised it was actually more fun than what I was doing. So I made the move to Shadforce in about uh, 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, stayed there for sort of uh, 13 years, then uh, moved over um, to, to the boutique sort of IFA space. Talk to me about, I mean, you don't, you don't meet a lot of lawyers who then go on to become financial advisors. I, well, I assume you don't, possibly you know more than I do, but tell us about the, how, that, how that came about. Well, it was interesting. There was, um, what I, I actually had done all the qualifications before I started working at Shadforce. And, um, so I actually put a proposal to my, my previous firm called Murdoch Clark if we could actually run a financial planning practice in the law firm. And they said, yeah, that's fine. So I actually did sort of two days work as a financial advisor and three days as a lawyer. But it was kind of like working as a doctor and a dentist in the same office. It kind of didn't work. Um, yeah, I did it for four months and I'd prefer to do my financial planning days and the legal days and, 
And there's a very different way of approaching clients back in those days. So with, when you're in the law, you know, the clients will do whatever you say. Whereas in financial services, you've actually got to bring the clients along with you because dealing with someone's money and their personal circumstances, it's, it's a different conversation you have. Okay. And how did, how did you make the transition? Was it just suddenly, you know, one day you're a lawyer, next day you're an advisor, or was it a, a slow evolution? Very much like that. So, um, so I actually sort of, um, I gave sort of Meadow Park six months notice, so, uh, which was the longest six months of my life, I could tell you. But, um, and <laughs> I did the two days at Shadforce, three days at Meadow Park. That was so I could transition. The clients then sort of kicked off at Shadforce in about June 2001. And, and one of the first things I did is I, I they just, you walked in and you were given a desk and a, a phone and a computer and, a, and they guaranteed your salary for a year. And it was very sort of confronting for a guy that hadn't worked in that environment before. So yeah. I sort of had probably a hundred key legal clients that I wrote a letter to and I wanted to um, make sure they remembered me. So I put two minties in each letter. <laughs> um, and even today, you know, 15, 16 years later, people still raise that. And I just was a very basic marketing ploy, but it actually worked. So that was sort of how I got, gradually got started. Just unpack the, the thought behind putting minties in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an envelope. Well, uh, it was, um, I suppose I just wanted to do something that they would remember, um, something that was a little bit different. And I suppose that's what we've tried to sort of carry through over the years, because if we drive the same car at the same speed in the same lane as everyone else, we're gonna get the same outcome. So what we've tried to do is do the ordinary things extraordinarily well. Um, so that when whoever you come across with in whatever circumstance, they actually leave with that warm, fuzzy feeling. So yeah. in effect, you're actually creating an advocate for what you do. And, um, and I suppose it's like building a sandcastle with a grain of sand at a time. And, and it just has this multiplier effect and it's really, really powerful. Absolutely. And this is, uh, this is one thing that when I, I got the, I mean, I watched your presentation five times when we were traveling around the country and every single time I just got something new out of it. And it was this, you just got this natural ability to look at a, a thing like a marketing opportunity or a Christmas card or, and go, how can I just do this? Not I don't have to spend a lot of money, but how can I do this in such a way that is just going to make it slightly different, slightly out there and, and slightly sort of more memorable than everybody else. And that's, yeah, it's really impressive. But I remember one year when I did the, um, when I was uh, working at Shadpost, we actually used to give Christmas cards. So what I arranged to do is actually had these personalized chocolates done up. And so we put it in the Christmas card. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those sort of things. Or when, um, when we were there, we used to have corporate umbrellas. And I'd sort of uh, take 60 of them, put them in my office, and people just couldn't understand why I'd do it. But whenever it rained and a client came into my office, I'd give them an umbrella. And for me, it was absolutely no-brainer. And for the client, they were absolutely really appreciated it. And, you know, you walk into a professional's office and you walk out with an umbrella on a rainy day, you're going to remember that professional and you're going to also tell your friends and family about it. Absolutely. Are you familiar with a guy called Derek Sivers? Yeah, he's, he runs a podcast, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a good mate of uh, Tim Ferriss's and a whole bunch of others. But he, he started a business called CD Baby. So the deal was you know, iTunes and, and all these sort of music companies were owning the, the space and he wanted to create a platform for independent musicians. So he started this thing and, and did extremely well out of it, sold it for I think 33 million and gave, put 30 million of the revenue straight into a charitable fund for musicians. But he has this, um, this letter that used to go out with every CD purchase. And it talks about, you know- I have seen that letter, I have seen yeah. that. It's, uh, it's, um, I've actually got it uh, to, we have, a, uh, we have a thing once a month, we have a work on the business day. And that's actually my, for next, so it's the first Friday in every month. So what we aim to do is we have um, all of the staff, it's coordinated by the uh, office manager that um, 
we wear plain clothes and you actually work on the business. We don't see clients. So you try and do something that's going to make your job more productive going forward. So whether that's doing a template letter or that sort of stuff. And normally I run a session to start off with and I, I came across that email about uh, the individually wrapped CD. And that's part of the thing I'm talking about, customer service next Friday, Stuart. So. Silk line gloves. It was carried to the airport and loaded onto in a gold-lined box. and It was just, it's... It's just a classic example of how you can take something so mundane and just someone takes it out and reads it and smiles. And next thing you know, it's, I mean, that's done more rounds of the internet than, uh, than Kim Kardashian, I'd imagine. <laughs> no, it, yeah, genius stuff. Let's talk a bit about, so you're, you're, you've, you've made the leap out of uh, the legal world. You're now with Shadforce. You're obviously not with Shadforce anymore. You've started your own business. So talk to me about that transition. What was the timeframes? How did it happen? What were some of the challenges? Um, yeah, I, I suppose uh, over time, when I first started at Shadforce, we were very much a boutique business and we, we grew quite quickly. So um, we also became listed. So the drivers are different from a listed business to an unlisted business. Um, and, and I suppose when you hit your early 40s, you really want to control your destiny. And I know if I looked in the, the glass sort of 10 years out, I saw that yeah, potentially I'd be early 50s. Wouldn't I'd be sort of a price taker, not a price maker. There's always someone younger, faster, they knew in that sort of environment, whereas if I yeah. actually was to um, leave and sort of create my own destiny where I can actually choose what I do, who I do it with and when I do it, um, that, that's really powerful. So um, took the leap. It was, um, it was a pretty full-on period, I have to say. Um, when you, Rebecca and I were, were two of their key business writers. Um, so when you leave, they don't, certainly don't roll out the red carpet for you. Um, I think when I uh, left the office, I nearly tore a hamstring. I was walked out that quick. <laughs> went, up to, um, went up to the local sort of uh, tavern to get a, a drink because uh, it was in the afternoon and we were, it's pretty full on. And by the time I'd got my drink and came and s sat back down, I'd been cut off all the phone system. Wow. Uh, the, ne the next morning at 8.30, I had a uh, courier letter telling me what I couldn't, couldn't do. Huh. A lot of correspondence from, um, from lawyers. I, had, I actually didn't do anything wrong. I had to sit, sit out for six months, had a three-year restraint. And, um, yeah, it was pretty full on. I mean, they... Yeah, there were things that, uh, you know, like, for example, I appeared in the phone book. I left in 2013, appeared in the phone book in 2014, 15 and 16 because they wouldn't remove me. So it was, a, it was a challenging period, but it actually just motivates you more than you'd ever believe when that happens. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah it's interesting. Look, I've had the experience of, of sort of leaving and there's still sort of content that I produced on other people's sites. But that's the thing. You can either choose to look back on it and go, you know what, I'm just going gonna, gonna to use this as fuel to, to fuel me, take me forward. I think uh, it's the only way you can do it. So it's probably one of the best things that happened to us, really, because it actually really put the fire. The fire in the belly was already there, but it, it lived like yeah. uh, you wouldn't believe for both Rebecca and I. Absolutely, it's like thank you for giving me a reason to to do this. Totally, totally, uh, sort of empathise with that. So this is two thousand and thirteen. Yep. Two thousand thirteen. So Main Street, you took some clients with you, or no clients at all? No, we had to start as a greenfield, so we couldn't actually touch any clients for a period of three years. So from okay. when my formal finishing date, so till January this year. Great, yep. Um, but you, you tend to find that there's plenty of clients around, like, and it's pretty confronting to start off with, but if you just um, do, the, do those sort of basic things well and are fairly consistent with it, the, the clients will come. And I suppose we've been able to reinvent ourselves and um, reinvent ourselves pretty well, actually, and uh, it's, it's been good. So there's two things that I think really I'd like to dive deep on and feel free to sort of um, direct this if you want to go in another direction, Charles. But one is the marketing or the profile building, which you've just, you've, you've absolutely nailed on so many levels. But the second is 
you know, the stuff that we spoke about yesterday, which is being able to see 30 clients you know, and, and seem to do this efficiently, which came first, the profile building and the marketing or the approach to creating a business that enables you to be front stage? Well, well I suppose initially we were, I was been very focused um, for a long period of time on sort of um, having a good Google presence because we are who Google says we are, as you know, people will do their due diligence that way. So I'll be very conscious to have, um, to build my Google profile over the last probably, you know, sort of five years. Yep. And um, by doing little things, so whether it's it's writing blogs for people, whether it's writing articles, people, all of those sort of things. So that's that's certainly helped. We were, yeah. we were very early adopters of video and we've tried to be sort of quite innovative how we've, we've done, used video. Yep. Um, so I was one of the early sort of early adopters of the Baz Gardner social advisor model with um, yep. a couple of others, sort of like Henderson Maxwell or others, you know, Everlesco or others. There's, there's a few of us, uh, Liam yep. Short. Uh, there's, um, so I've, I've done that to that and we focused a lot on the, the first six months when we weren't working on building that Google presence. So making sure that we had some eBooks, all of those sort of resources. Um, and then it's like a, something that works 24 seven, 365 days a year. <laughs> And so that was probably the start. Then we tried to build systems and processes that what would really enable you know, everyone in the office to actually work at their strengths. So we often go to, to you know, in, in large organisations, I'll say that you've got to work on your weaknesses and whatever, but I kind of don't agree with that. I yeah. think we're actually better to build a team that, you know, there's some things I do really, really well and some things I do really, really badly. And the things that I do really, really badly, I should employ someone who does them really, really well. Yeah. And so by focusing on the things that you enjoy doing, and you know, I enjoy helping people, I enjoy seeing people, I enjoy creating activity and momentum and all of those sort of things, um, we all sort of get dragged along in that sort of vortex. So it works well and you know, Rebecca's very good at what she does as well. So it's a bit like the yin and the yang, really. I love that. We are in the program, Charles, we've got a module called the activity audit. Uh, and it's uh, when you've got people who are overwhelmed or, or they're just doing, you know, they're doing a lot of stuff, urgent stuff instead of important stuff. It's about sort of getting everything you do in your role out on a piece of paper or out of a spreadsheet. And it's really categorizing into two things. The stuff that you is your genius, you're great at. Uh, if you did more of it, it would drive your business forward and it would make you happier. And then the stuff that potentially is not a strength, you should get, you could outsource, you could delegate, you can automate. And I think that for me, the secret to, uh, you know, being in the role you want and building the business you want is to over a period of time, work out a way to systematize the things you don't want to do anymore and hand them over to either employees, outsource providers or, or technology. Yeah, and I suppose we did something similar. So we actually divided the work roles into yeah, the black zone, the red zone, the green zone. So the red zone is very sort of you know, basic sort of work. So data entry, turning up appointments, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so that's probably say you know, $20 to $30 an hour. Your green zone is sort of, you know, working with clients on things. So whether it's doing a record of bias, statement of bias, a phone call, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the black zone is whether it's running a, a webinar, whether it's writing an ebook. It's actually about there's, there's you can't place a value on that. Um, mm. And so what we try to get is with, with the principal. So with Rebecca and I, for example, we try to work in the, the black and the green zone. Um, and so fairly been fairly conscious of that over the years as well. I love it. I heard, I remember hearing a similar sort of model from, I think it was Sherlaw's used to sort of do colourful things back in the day. But I don't think it's the first time people talk about categorising and getting really clear about the elements. Let's talk about, can we talk a bit about articles and videos? Um, I'd love to know, you know, what are some of the, 
the things you've found important to write stuff that, uh, or put stuff out there that people are going to actually use? And what sort of time frame did it take you to, before you started getting traction with this stuff? I suppose there's a lot of there's a lot of noise out there, and so a lot of people use the machine gun approach and try and um, just be all things to everyone. And what we've been very conscious about is really trying to go fishing where the fish are. Yeah. Okay? So. You know, with Snapchat, for example, that's my daughter's vintage sort of teenage years. It's kind of not really our, our game. So we're not on Snapchat. But you know, LinkedIn is an example, you know, Facebook, those things. But where you do it, we don't just produce generic content. You're actually better to produce you know, specific content with a little bit of humour. And I'm not that funny, but I try to be. But I'm not really that funny. But that actually people can relate to. So um, and, and specific things. So we had a... We had a um, I did a LinkedIn post. We had a young guy who works with us, and he's a he's a very good guy. And he came and basically uh, made an appointment to see me. And he was 24, and we gave him. He started off doing part time work, and now he's he's in two and a half years. He's done all his studies, and he's about to become an advisor. So I put a, a post on that on LinkedIn, and um, that ended up with sort of you know 2,000 likes and you know 150,000 views as an example. So you're actually relating it to us us personally. Mm. Um, so that, there's a, so we've tried to post rather than every day or every week, you know, where we've got something meaningful to say that we think people will actually engage with, we, we put it up there. I love it. So um, there are a couple of questions that came up. I'm going to start pulling some. Uh, Glenn sort of talks about how do you become a micro-celebrity? Uh, Sean sort of mentioned what's the process for distilling what your personal brand would represent. It feels like we're kind of talking a little bit about this, you know, stand for something, stand against something, state something out there that, you know, is going to attract people who believe what you believe. What's your... What's your best advice on how to how to sort of build that brand and, and, and sort of get real estate in people's heads? Yeah, well, I suppose I, I, I mean, I, I kind of don't really look at myself as a micro-celebrity, to be frank. It's, yeah, I, knew I, would, I, knew, I, am, but, I knew you wouldn't. I knew you'd be like, um, I don't know what you're talking about, Stu. But you just, I, I suppose the key thing, I think, is to be consistent in what you do and find something that you, you enjoy and actually just genuinely help people. Because whatever the day, if you're, if you're genuinely helping people, and giving them information and giving them resources and stuff to help them, I mean, you can't go wrong. Mm. Um, it's not like I'm actually asking them for a lot of time. I'm actually giving them stuff. And yep. so whether I'm sending them through an article, whether I'm sort of asking them along to a boardroom lunch, whether I'm actually, I'm actually adding to their life. I'm not. And then, so I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving. And then at some point, they're, oh, yeah, I want to deal with Charles or that, or deal with Rebecca or the team at Main Street. Now, I suppose it's uh, it's been an evolving process. And I think too many people just want to, the quick win and, and there's no such thing as a silver bullet it's just consistent there's a really uh, really great talk ted talk with richard st john the secrets of success it's about a three minute talk there's a three minute version a seven minute version it's something that like i probably would watch it once a month i reckon it's a really concise way in terms of what, what you need to do to move forward and i think i'd encourage everyone to sort of uh, watch it at lunch today it's a fantastic video what, what was that richard's richard st john the secrets of success uh, it's actually a TED video yeah. He's uh, the behavioral psychologist, right? Yeah. He also did a great one on uh, why people care less about themselves than they do their future selves than they do strangers, I think. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one, but yeah, it's... Uh... Okay. That's perfect. I'm, I'm writing that down. That'll be in the notes. Love that. And, you know, you talked about sort of... I get a feeling that patience is a thing that you sort of... If you're going to go this online value creation, create a funnel, how long did it take you to start getting real traction with your videos and your articles? Um, it's probably, I suppose I was, I suppose I was quite lucky in a sense because I was an early adopter. Right. Um, so I kind of looked at it as if I've, uh, if I've built my house and I've built a swimming pool and I've put a, you know, an antenna on the roof and I'm constantly renovating my house. 
it's very hard for someone who's got a vacant block of land to catch up to me. So if we look at that from a social media, like you've, you've done nothing, so you've got your vacant block of land. We've, I've been building this for sort of five, seven, eight years. Um, it's actually quite difficult for you to catch up. So, so I was quite lucky I did it early. I've been very conscious that we've engaged some really good people. So we've got a, um, an SEO team in the Philippines that mm-hmm. we get some analytics each month in terms of where we rate with our competitors, you know, right. keyword searches, all of that sort of stuff. So and conscious to do things so, you know, where you have like, for example, the Google Street View. Now you've got Google Office View, so we've actually got that which improves your Google Analytics for your business, all of those things. So we're constantly evolving and I suppose we're conscious that, you know, what got us here yesterday is not going to get us there tomorrow. Love it. I'm going to sort of pull two questions from Eve wanted to know, if you had to sort of nail it down to one tip to build your profile in your market, what would you be focusing on or what would the tip be? Um, consistency. So be consistent in what you do. You can't be a one-hit wonder. Mm-hmm. And so really it's just an ongoing process. Um, and you'd, you'd pick where your fish are and I'd be just consistently adding value in that sort of area. So, and some things, you know, like for example, Google Groups used to be quite popular a few years ago, but they seem to have sort of uh, gone. And so I was very sort of active in the Tasmanian business Google Groups there for a few years. But, yeah, that wasn't sort of work. I had to set up a Google Group for myself that I ran and stuff. But, and it went well for the first six months, but it dropped off so... Things are changing, and I suppose it's just a bit like disruptive technology and everything. And we've got to be conscious that we've got to constantly move. Love it. Uh, and I, I guess the other thing I always think about with consistency is, is first thing is be consistent in your message. You know, don't veer from issue to issue or hot button to hot button, left, right, and center. Try and pick, you know, a few core hot buttons that are really relevant to your market and write about them, talk about them in different ways. And probably the thing is, you know, if you're going to go via, via video blogging or blogging or whatever your thing is, if you're publishing one blog, you know, two in a week and then you wait a month and then you publish a video blog and it's not really going to work. There has to be sort of a consistent production as well, don't you feel? Yeah, no, very much so. Um, and I suppose what we were very conscious, particularly during um, our gardening leave period, is to actually create a sort of a, a library of videos that you can use. And, and yeah, they've got enduring value. I, you know, three years ago, I looked a bit younger, but it, it's still, the message is still relevant. And what's your tech setup for, for video? What do you use? How do you make it efficient? Uh, we actually... Um, We've got a, a video uh, camera guy who's uh, a young uni student, and so we'll, we'll get him for the day. Uh, we'll actually have 10 to 12 sites. We'll have some script. We use um, teleprompter from um, the iPad, so it just sits under the screen, so it's just like I'm a newsreader, and providing I don't move my eyes, you'll never know I'm reading it. So uh, it works pretty well. Um, and then we do these short sort of bite-sized sort of one to one and a half minute videos. We haven't done them for a year or two, but um, other than amending the corporate video because we have to keep amending because we have new staff coming on board so we're growing so that's but no it's um it works with us you can actually get and that's not overly expensive so we can get sort of you know 10 to 15 videos for yeah fifteen hundred dollars so it's pretty reasonable that's perfect like uh yeah it's it's a lot cheaper than it used to be and uh we actually uh, we've got a video guy out in brazil and it's great because we upload something to the cloud and he he splices it up takes out all the dodgy bits to the point where he says to me, don't, you know, just roll. And if, you, if it doesn't come out right, just stop, look down, go again. So literally, if I, if, if I want to do something on the fly, I can, I can even have my script down on the ground and just be, say two lines, look down and start again. And he'll splice it into something that looks good. So, it's, yeah, video yeah. can hide a multitude of sins. Cool. Can you talk a bit about systems and processes? I mean, it's something that a lot of business owners kind of struggle to get around to. Why has it been such a big focus? Where did you learn that lesson about getting it done. Well, I've got to say, my business partner, Rebecca's very good at this, uh, very good at systems and process and making sure, I suppose what we want to do, we want every client experience in our business to be like the Truman Show. 
So we know what happens at different points. So we've actually got a an office manual where so we've got every person to actually write down the steps they do. So we actually so anyone can pick up any job and know what happens. And I remember when I, when I previously worked at, uh, at Chadfoss, there were a couple of very senior people that had some serious knowledge in their head and they left. And I was thinking, my goodness, that was mm. a whole waste of resources that, um, and I just don't think anyone sort of thought about it, but there was like 50 years worth of share trading knowledge in terms of back office systems that walked out the door. And I, I kind of, you know, when Becca and I spoke about it, we thought it was very important to document that. So um, I suppose it's a business protection mechanism as well so we know what everyone does and it's it's a consistent like with checklists and that sort of thing so we've tried to adopt a, a big business approach to a small business if that makes sense so i mean do you actually build the processes yourself or does someone else do that um we use we use x plan um, as our system but um we've we built some we've also got some use some through our dealer group as well so the processes that you create, is this something that you'll sit down with a whiteboard and draw them up or is it, do you dictate what you want? Is there a, is there a, a, a process you've, you've created which enables you to tell people what you want and then they, they work out the, the detail? Well, basically we've all, we've all got different roles in the office. So, you know, for example, one of the, one of the staff, her, her role is reviews, for example. Yep. So when we have a, a we have different sort of, as everyone has different sort of client segments and a process for review. Okay, this is what we need to get for this sort of client. Uh, this is the time frame. This is how we engage with them. And one of the things we use now is we use Calendly, for example. So when yep. you look at the diary, so I'll, I'll send you a link and I've got different meeting sorts. So a, a review meeting, a you know, sort of a new client meeting, and they've got different time periods. So one of the things that I found was people might want to say catch up for coffee. And you kind of, you can easily waste sort of three or four hours a week catching up with people for coffee where you're just giving them information. And yeah, you know, it's like 10% of my work week when I'm meant to be seeing clients. So I kind of thought that's not really a productive use of time. So what I've actually done on Calendly, for example, I've actually got a general catch-up. So it's just for 20 minutes. Right. So when I send it to you, we're just a very sort of efficient, I've got to go up another appointment. Bang. It's an evolving process, I suppose. There's a great book, I think I've got it here, which I've taken a lot of. And it sounds like it's similar thought. It's by Marcus Bird called The Three Minute Coach. And uh, it you know, makes that point, which is you, you know, it's kind of like the amount of time you give to get something done. If you give people an hour, you know, you'll probably get most of the conversation done in the last 20 minutes. But if you condense yeah. it down, you can give people exactly the same result in a much shorter space of time. And they leave with more time in their pocket. You leave with more time in their pocket and you kind of get that reputation as being someone who solves problems fast. Yeah. That's perfect. Um, cool. Let's... Uh, Let's chat a bit about um, the efficiency because I've got a couple of questions coming through around, you do a lot of meetings a week. Yep. Um, what does your review process look like? What does the new client process look like from Glenn Doherty? Given, given what you do, you must be super efficient. Okay, so I suppose what, um, what I'm very lucky that I've got, we've got a, Rebecca and I've got a really good support team that really help us out that are very good at what they do. Right. Um, so with a new client, so a new client will actually sort of send an email or ring up. What we will normally do is um, either send them through, uh, either the receptionist will actually book the appointment and we'll send them an email with a, a little sort of personal financial questionnaire they need to complete and some all the documentation they need to send in. You know, normally sort of at least sort of 48 hours before the meeting. So that enables me to actually say, okay, Stuart Bell is coming in on Wednesday. This issues, and we can actually, you know, I have a rough idea in terms of what are the issues involved. Yeah. And that may well be that if I can't actually help Stuart, I might say, look, I might give you a call, Stuart, and say, look, um, 
no coming Wednesday. These are some of the things I think we need to, to look at, but I, it's not really our area of expertise, but I'll come in and we might have a 15-minute chat on it or something. Yeah. Um, so I'm actually very sort of pretty, and it also enables us to make sure that we've got the right advisor seeing the right person when they come in. Yeah. Um, we will then um, see the client. We normally, we generally don't charge a fee for the first appointment because I think it's important that uh, it gives them a chance to sort of you know, work out whether we're for them and they're for us. It's sort of a bit of an introduction sort of thing. And because yep. what we what we want to do, like like most people out there, is we want to create long ongoing relationships with people over a long period of time. That's uh, then we would, after we've seen the initial the client in the initial, we would normally send them through a terms of engagement, saying, "Okay, this is roughly what I think we need to look at. This is roughly what it would cost." They'll come back to us and say, "Yep, happy with that." And then we'd work through it, and we'd normally have the statement of advice sort of meeting and the other questions and the implementation. Then, you know, generally speaking, that proceed to sort of become ongoing clients because we've got those yeah. filters that stops it um, in the early early times. So if they're not suitable, and unfortunately, it's just a numbers game. I mean, you have to. You have to turn over a lot of beer cases to your fine mum with a gold nugget underneath. And okay. it's like anything. And it's certainly easier now than what it was when we first started because we've got existing clients that we really enjoy working with and they see the value that we add and they actually refer their friends and family to us. So a lot of advisors I speak to, they struggle with this idea of filtering or saying no or um, not, you know, when someone asks, can I come and meet with you? They just say yes. How did you, how did you get over that? Um, I think you can, you can actually help people without taking up too much time so so let's say someone said, look, Charles, I really want to buy an investment property. Okay. Now, that's kind of not really our core work. Yeah. We might sort of you know, send them through an email which highlights some websites to be able to assist them. We might talk them through the process and say, okay, you've got to have uh, someone who's got your back with this. So whether it's a buyer's agent, whether it's an agent going to send you through you know, properties before they come on the market, we might facilitate that sort of introduction and all that. So we've actually helped the client but not really given them any advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they walk away with that warm, fuzzy feeling. And does this tie into your speaking work at all? I suppose speaking sort of something's just evolved over time. Really, it's um, it's just sort of a I don't, it just sort of happens really. Um, and I think you know speaking is a really powerful forum because it enables you to speak to a lot of people in either, um, at, at once. And it sort of evolved when I when I wrote that, that book, and I kind of thought I had to think outside the square. How am I going to actually market this book? Yeah, and everyone's got books, and it's a, we've talked about being a great business card, all that sort of stuff, but. What I did, I donated a copy of the book to every school in Tasmania and also to every PNF in Tasmania. So what it meant was my book was in the school library. Um, and then also I'd go and talk at um, the schools about you know, the 10 common financial mistakes made by young people and then I'd do a talk at the, the PNF and they'd use the book as a bit of a fundraiser. So just sort of thinking outside the square like that. So like helping, but there's also obviously a long-term benefit for me doing that sort of stuff mm. as well. So do you have a... And the answer may be no to this, Charles, but is there a process you go through to ask these questions and come up with these ideas? Or is it just uh, an environment you're uh, getting? Or a way no, you can... I, I just sort of, um, I know they just come up really. I just sort of think outside the square a bit. And I suppose what I'm very conscious, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And um, and so I might send myself, whenever something comes up into my head, I'll, um, I'll send myself an email um, so I remember it. Um, That's good. You know, the notepad beside the bed, all those sort of things because um, occasionally you think, my oh, goodness, that's just a great idea. I'm going to write that down. And we've, um, you know, I suppose we've managed to over time evolve and have all these things that I suppose make us in, in a workplace in a, where we quite a unique environment and it's good. Yeah, it's, I, um, I use a tool called Voxer, same sort of thing, but it's actually an audio 
um, an audio walkie-talkie so I can dictate something. And then sort of once a week, I'll go and check to see what crazy ideas I've gone come up with. And if they're decent ideas, we pop them into like a, a tre- our Trello, which is our scrum board. Yeah. Uh, and then every 90 days, we'll, we'll have a look at the ideas and ask questions whether we should do it. Because I think the, there's two parts to this for me. There's one, capturing the ideas, but then there's got to be a filter to really ask, you know, whilst I think it's a good idea, um, I think the team has to have input into whether it's actually what we focus on. And I've got to sort of um, check it against what I'm looking to achieve. Otherwise, you can end up sort of chasing shiny ideas along the way. You know, I suppose what we, we break our year down into three-month blocks. Yep. So we actually have, okay, what's our, what are our three-month targets we're going to do for, for the business over the next three months? So, yeah, it might be established calendarly. It might be dragon dictation. It might be last pass for the password staff. Yep. Uh, it might be build a corporate brochure. And that might be a three-month target, and we'd work through that. Then we'd actually sit down and reset the next three months. Yeah. And so what it enables you to, it links very well into the work on the business day because if you think about it, we've got eight of us here and you know, so you've got 12, 12 days with eight people. It's effectively like nearly a full-time person working on the business every every year by, if you use that time really constructively. Love it. Um, I'm going to pull a few questions out from the audience. But I do have some more things I want to ask you, particularly, you know, I'd love to, to unpack that week a bit more. But um, Matt Meehan asked a great question. 30 meetings last week. Face-to-face or is there a mixture in there? Oh, I would have been about uh, 25 face-to-face, probably five Skype. People must understand that. I've got a, quite a few people that actually make sure that when I go to meeting, the file's ready. So I'll have sort of probably you know, 15 minutes in between meetings where I just read up and make sure I'm up to speed with it. We've prepared the agenda sort of a week before. So you're really hitting it, the ground running. So I try to make sure that at the start of the end of, like at the end of a Thursday, I've done everything I need to do on a Thursday. And I've got my to-do list for the Friday. I'm all set for the Friday. So it's very, I suppose, planned. It's a little bit like the Truman Show. It works well. And, and that's my role in the business is to see people and engage with people. So um, it's more effective for me doing that rather than writing a statement of advice. It feels, it feels a lot like you've, um, you've really perfected this idea of being the, the race car driver in the car. You've worked out, right, I don't want to be changing the wheels. I don't want to be get out refueling the car. So I need to set up a process that enables me to just, just drive. And then everything else, when I pit, is done and I can move on. Yeah, well, I think that's right because if, at the end, they have two principles. If Rebecca and I don't drive the business, how's the business going to drive? Absolutely. Um, and over time, you, like we've got sort of um, a, an advisor in sort of in training, I suppose. He'll be an advisor in the next sort of six months, but he'll often come in a meeting that's suitable for him and he'll run with a lot of it. And it's a good training ground for him as well. And um, I suppose it's the most important thing, I think, from an advisor's point of view, is to engage with, with clients and people. Absolutely. And that's what you're good at. I mean, uh, I know a lot of advisors who'd love to just work on the strategy stuff, in which case, you know, to, to your point, you know, back, uh, play to your strengths and backfill your weaknesses. So if, if you don't like the client, if you're an introvert advisor, then find somebody who loves the front end stuff. Similarly, I think a lot of businesses have got to reach a point where if maybe you don't like managing people and you don't, you're not an organizer and a systematizer, then get someone who can manage the practice. Sounds like you've got it in Rebecca. And, yeah, we've uh, got an office manager, Anna, who's uh, like Rebecca's, um, oh, she's an A-grade quality advisor as well, but um, Anna's our office manager and Anna um, loves that stuff. We, uh, we have a lot of confidence in her and I suppose we've known her for a long time and she, she works well and we own the building as well, so Anna manages that for us and um, yeah, we'd be lost without Anna. Can we talk about X-Plan just quickly? Yep. How instrumental has X-Plan been systemizing your business and... Given so many advisors sort of uh, 
or CRMs are, are, are a bit of a bugbear for advice businesses and X-Plan you know, is, is, gets complained about quite a bit. How have you managed to make it work for you? Um, we all have different sort of um, access limits in X-Plan. I've got the, um, so my X-Plan is pretty basic in a sense. So whilst we, everything's virtual in terms of like I'll see a client will scan up the notes and all that stuff and I'll do a, a drag and dictation file note after each meeting. So for the next meeting, I'll read it so I know what's gone on and enables you to be really detailed with that. We've got some people at the back end that do a lot of stuff with the modelling and the tasks and all of that, the threads and that sort of stuff. I um, know enough on that to be dangerous, to be frank. Uh, and so we have, for example, in August, we've got our X-Plan coach from the dealer group coming down for sort of three days to improve the efficiency. So it's a, I suppose it's an ongoing um, process. And I see that from a business point of view going forward, you actually you have your business at the core, but you have all these add-ons. Right? So X-Plan being one of those. Now, X-Plan works well for us at the moment, but what's to say that midwinter might be a better option in three or four years' time? I don't know. Yeah. So be nimble enough to get out of positions as well. Um, Matt Meehan wants to know, how do, how do prospects generally find you? Um, Google's got a lot to do with it, actually. <laughs> there you go. Get out of the bag there. But, um, Google, and also I suppose we've been very conscious to um, you know, work closely with centres of influence in our sort of core community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was quite lucky that in my past life I was a lawyer and Rebecca was an accountant. So in those sort of roles, you're actually generally engaging against other professionals. So they actually get to know you and they know how you work. So um, that, that's worked quite well. And um, I suppose we're also fairly involved in the community. I mean, both Rebecca and I are very social creatures. So yeah, we both sit on the boards of the schools our children are at and um, involved a bit in the community and that sort of stuff. And but we kind of don't do that for work. It's kind of, it's part of being engaged in a community, I reckon. You sound like your classic extrovert, Charles. Yeah, you're probably right, actually. <laughs> Love getting you get energy from other people. Um, do delegation. How do you manage to... A lot of people struggle with the delegation. How have you managed to master it so you can delegate all this stuff effectively? What are the tips? If you can't delegate it, you can't get leverage. So if someone can do it 95% of, as well as I can, why shouldn't I delegate it? And it also empowers people because the last thing people want is someone that micromanages them what they do. So you've... Um, I mean, we're very lucky in terms of the staff we have, and but they enjoy running with things and they enjoy the responsibility. And if they're going to run with it and do as, as good a job as I'm going to do, why wouldn't I delegate it? I think um, if I want the business to grow, if Rebecca and I want the business to grow, it's important that, that we sort of um, share the responsibility. So I suppose I've never had a problem delegating. Um, and I think the only way you can actually get ahead is to delegate. I think if you micromanage and try to do everything yourself and do those red tasks at $20 an hour, you're wasting your time. You get the idea that if you, you, you try and do it all yourself and micromanage, you're going to end up sort of um, pissing everyone off to be quite honest. But how do, how do you have, there's a big difference between dumping stuff on people and delegating effectively. Dumping is generally where you just say, I do this for me and you don't really give enough guidance. Whereas delegation, you tend to give people a bit of direction, a bit of guidance, but then you step out of their way on the, on the fine detail. How do you find that happy balance? Um, well, normally we, we try to sort of with um, where we give a client, we give a, a staff member a task, I'll normally do a memo, a very detailed memo through Dragon Dictation. Okay. And then, you know, the office door is always open and it's, you know, they come in any time and we work through it. And so um, it's, I think, dropping and dumping on somebody is the worst thing you can do. Uh, we have a... <laughs> yeah, quite a structured process with the staff. So they're generally sort of every staff, we catch up, we catch up 15 minutes a week just in terms of where they're at, what they're doing, um, just at a personal level, making sure they're, they're comfortable. I suppose taking an interest in them, like, like we genuinely really like working with them and, they're, and we know them better than um, 
you know, the kids' names, you know, the dogs' names. They're kind of like friends in a way, your staff. It's mm. in a small office. It's kind of, it's, it's different to a big corporate and you help each other. And I, and I suppose very, um, you know, there's been times where, you know, in the first sort of couple of weeks of January, we might be quiet on a new client front. So I'll actually go down to um, the office and talk to the 24 trip. Look, you know, I haven't got much on. Let me take some of your workload off you. And I think that's really important from their point of view. They actually see you doing those sort of things and, and happy to help them. I think that's really good. Uh, one of the best bits of advice I got, uh, and, and it works, you know, in particular for working with staff who aren't in the same location as you, is understand that even if you're not together, you need to connect as people and take an interest in each other and what you do. And it can't all be work, work, work. At some point, you've got to flip over and realize that, you know, for a third of two thirds of their life, they've, they've got more than that. They've got nothing to do with your business. And if you don't connect with them about what's happening outside the world, you're only seeing a very small portion of who they are. Yeah. It's very um, confronting. We had um, one of the one of uh, the people well, he's he's 24, and um, his mum was down. He's actually supported himself through uni, and his mum was down from uh, Launceston for his birthday. So I said, "Why don't you bring your mum in for morning tea?" So his mum came in for morning tea. It was very confronting because I was actually older than his mother. <laughs> I love that. Uh, when you came out of Shabforce. You made the decision not to not to go self-licensed. I know you're with Fitzpatrick's, right? Yeah. Tell us about that decision. Well, initially, we actually went, um, we were pretty green when we first started. So we actually were first licensed through Lonstar. So we were licensed with Lonstar for, for 12 months and with Mark Stevens and the team. And we really, really enjoyed that. But unfortunately, IWF took over Shadforce. So it's a bit like uh, getting into bed with your ex-wife. We couldn't do it. So we had to leave. So then we engaged Peloton Partners to... Um, you know, Rob Jones and Michael Harrison to come up with a couple of dealer groups for us. So then we, we yep. moved to Fitzpatrick's. Um, we didn't go down the self-licensed route, I suppose, because we wanted to actually focus on actually bringing clients in and building the business. We kind yep. of thought in due course, if we want to do that, we can evolve to that. But we thought it would be sort of taking on too much at this stage. That's worked out well? Yeah, no, it's been good. It's been good. So, um, yeah, we're constantly evolving, but, yeah, no, it's good. Good. I had the opportunity to work under Johnny Mack at, at Hill Ross. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, no, there's sort of, uh, it's kind of, we kind of, uh, when we first walked in there, it's the kind of room you want to walk in because you're, you're the dumbest guy in the room and they're the sort of good rooms to be in. It totally is. And, and, and yeah, John, John is a smart cat, really smart cat. Glenn Doty wanted to know, uh, you might, how many clients do you have at the moment, Glenn, uh, Charles? Because you're obviously growing quickly, right? We have, we have about 240 clients. Right. From a scratch. So 200, when I say 200, uh, Groups of clients, so 240 ongoing engaged clients. Right. Um, we would probably have, so there's, on a, we probably have somewhere between sort of 15 to 25 that we're sort of working through with a view to sort of becoming ongoing at any one point in time. So mm -hmm. we've got sort of um, a big, hairy, audacious goal at the end of December next year is to have sort of 300 ideal clients. Um, so we're well on, on track for that. Yep. Um, and we sort of, again, we break it down into sort of like you know, quarters and we've got a bit of a scorecard in the, um, in the engine room, so to speak, where, which talks about where we, where we sit on that. Um, so all the staff are aware in terms of you know, what we're trying to achieve. And in terms of you know, 300 clients, it's, it's not an overly ridiculous number of clients, but how do you manage like investments? Is it SMAs? Is it tailored? How do you keep um, it well, it's actually, it's been a bit of an evolving process actually because that um, we've actually got a, um, we run a core satellite portfolio mm -hmm. um, so we've basically got a standard sort of portfolio for clients based on their various risk profiles I think that's the only way you can do it but we're actually looking at sort of SMAs and that sort of stuff at the moment actually and I, 
um, I suppose it was something that we weren't overly familiar with um, in our previous employer, but we've now got a pretty good handle on it. And certainly that will play a key part of what we do for, for a certain segment of clients going forward. Perfect. Richard Goulet, I hope I've pronounced that right, would love to ask you, what are your key tips for younger advisors to build relationships or sorry, referral relationship or partnerships? When you're building relationships, it's important you actually build them with people that are like-minded, think the same. So you can have an accountant that you think is fantastic, but if he's not a referral kind of guy and he's not wired that way and he's not a um, committed to self-improvement and committed to sort of building the relationship, you want to be able to grow together. So you want a, a core group of influencers that you can actually evolve your practice with. So they can benefit from it, you can benefit from it, but also you have a really good time doing it. So you, yeah, you have a bit yeah. of banter, you help each other and... So it's part social, part professional. I mean, no one's going to refer you work unless they like you socially. Um, but you've got to be conscious that it's not just you know, going out for six hours at lunch, for example. It's about sort of having a meaningful coffee meeting and have it really helping them. And if you can help and empower them, they'll help and empower you, providing they've got the right mental mindset, I suppose. Does it kind of add something else, which is, um, you know, if, you are, if you're a growing practice, uh, which a lot of younger advisors do tend to be, and you are on a marketing angle, like you're, you want to go down authority marketing or you want to put stuff out there and you're working with a business that doesn't market, they don't do any online stuff, they don't have a newsletter, they don't do events, then straight away that's got to be a red flag that says that, you know, whatever you're going to do, you're not going to be able to get control or any sort of control over getting an active stream and it's going to be a passive thing, which means it's probably not going to be fast. Yeah, and that's probably not the sort of business you want to be in. I think you've got to be in a business that's reflective of your personality. And you're either sort of um, green and growing or ripe and rotten. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in the industry, when you've got a mature base, client base, they sit back. Um, but that's kind of not us and it shouldn't be. You know, I suppose if, if back to Richard's question, I'd actually try and piggyback on the tails of someone you actually respect and admire in the office to actually get them to show you the ropes and see what they do. And, um, you know, I'd replicate and duplicate. Uh, yeah, replicate and duplicate or rip off and duplicate, as some people call it. Mm. There's actually a great book on that if anybody's interested. Austin Clown wrote a book called Show Your Work, which talks a lot about uh, how, to, how to sort of create content. And also uh, work is kind of a, a, a what would I say, a, a share of content, other people's work and, and how to attribute really great stuff uh, to sort of get that started. So, yeah, on the R&D space. Justin uh, wanted another question. Uh, do your other advisors have to get their own clients? Uh, assuming with all the back office skills there, you can advise on all the people who want you to be their advisor. Um, that makes sense. There's, there's certainly no pressure on other advisors to get clients at this stage. Um, you know, we've, we've only got eight of us in the office. We've got plenty of work coming in. Um, we're in sort of a niche sort of spot. Um, that will evolve over time, but certainly from our end, there's, there's no pressure. At the end of the day, I suppose I see Rebecca and I as the, the primary rainmakers. And, you know, it's very hard for someone who's sort of 25, 26, 27 to actually replicate what you've got in the mid 40s because you've had 20 more years of doing it than what they have so so from our point of view there's no there's certainly no pressure at the end of the day we want to do with ideal clients we don't want to have and a lot of people that are say a 23 year old 24 year old might bring in they're kind of not the sort of stuff you can build a business on that you enjoy working in um it's really just putting out spot fires you want to um have a sustainable you know meaningful relationship with with a core group of clients just uh, just deeper on that what do you think it is what are the key attributes that make it easier to yeah, be a rainmaker in your 40s than in your 20s. I, I suppose it's just being patient by sort of investing in yourself from an education point of view. Also being involved in things. So whether it's a, a sporting club, whether it's a, 
um, an industry body or something and actually just trying to get as much experience as you can during that time. So like, don't waste your time because when you get to your 30s and 40s, when you've got children, time is really, really precious. Whereas in your 20s, you've got so much time, um, use it wisely. You know, sort of seek out people, take on, say yes to everything, all of that sort of thing. I think it's um, over time you can be more selective, but you know, grab every experience in your 20s. That would be my tip. Was it this, uh, I can't remember who said this, but it said when you're uh, young, uh, you've got uh, time and, and energy but no money. When you're in your midlife, you've got uh, money and energy, but no time. And then when you get older, you've got time, but you've got no, you've, uh, you've got time and money, but you've got no energy. So uh, I always think about that really carefully. It's so true. Um, Jenny asked a great question. Uh, sounds like you've got an awesome culture in there, Charles, where our staff are really happy to come to work. She would love to know how, how have you achieved it? What are the main things you've done to to make it happen? Um, I, I suppose we want work to be fun, and we want. Um, yeah, we have a we have a, we do little things. So we have drinks at four o'clock on a Friday, and everyone goes oh, drinks at four o'clock on a Friday. But but then they, most people work just after eight. They work through lunch and they work after five thirty. So the least we can do is is do that. So we have little things. So we have a um, yeah, we bought an arcade game for example. So we bought an arcade game on Gumtree for thousand dollars. So every Friday we have a game, and so we have the highest score gets a prize. So what I did is I went to um, Shiploads, which is a local discount store down here. And, did you say Shiploads? Shiploads, yes. You've got to be careful how you say that, Stuart. You do, you do. <laughs> and so we had, um, so we've got a whole lot of, so I wrapped up all these presents and stuff. And so it's a lucky dip when you, um, if you get the uh, highest score in the game, you get to pick a prize. And so some of the prizes are quite humorous. So, um, so I suppose it's, and we've got, I suppose a lot of the staff have, have played sport. They've, um, like one of the, uh, Penny is, um, she's the fifth fastest backstroker in the world for between 55 and 59, for example. So, there's a lot of sort of, I suppose, yeah. friendly, engaging sort of, it's, and you've got to enjoy it if you don't enjoy your work. Goodness, it'd be a night. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, uh, we're about to do our every 90-day planning, and obviously we've got uh, two of our awesome team are overseas. But we do something called virtual pizza, where we'll do a planning day, and then around about lunchtime, uh, we'll phone the pizza here, we'll phone the pizza overseas, and everyone gets pizza delivered. Oh. And about the same time, we sit there in front of Zoom and eat pizza together. The thing is, the strange thing is my pizza always arrives last. I don't know why that is. So, yeah, it's that whole thing about just going, right, how can we do – we're going to do this anyway, so what can we do to make it collegiate or, or inclusive? Hopefully that was helpful, Jenny. Are there any other tips that you want to put in there? Because I know Jenny, oh, this would be really useful in terms of what she's looking to do in her business. No, I suppose one of the things we also do is, um, yeah, the old slow to hire as well. So, yeah making sure that sort of we get to know them quite well. Do your due diligence. Don't look at their sort of um, their, their referees. You, you do your LinkedIn check and who they know, and then you uh, give them a call. And you know, doing your, your personality tests. So we we do a personality test, which I think is $350, which enables us to look at um, you know, what sort of traits we've got. And that will tell us. Also, we do a bit of a – we, we the um, prospective person doesn't realise this, but we actually go in and get a tour of the office. And everyone in the office knows that we're going to Stuart Bills come around and just to give us the sort of the thoughts on him. So oh, little right. things like that, I suppose. And because um, in a small team, it's like, it's like one bad egg can wreck the whole dynamics, really. Yeah, absolutely. You let a you let a saboteur in amongst your team of advocates, and you've got a problem. Uh, Jenny, like a couple of things to check out is Inspired Hiring on the members site, which is based on a book called The Who: The A Method for Hiring, uh, and also. Uh, on the second point, Susan Rochester's uh, webinar, which is actually on YouTube, which talks a lot about psychometric testing, really useful. She gives insight to what it is and isn't. 
Charles, I know you've got to go, so let me just ask one more question and then we'll close up. I really appreciate your time. Matt and Glenn just want to know about if you're comfortable sharing fees, fee packages, what does it look like? Uh, is there any sort of guidance you can give them around what, what you found works? Well, I suppose initially, like, there's been a lot of talk in the industry potentially about sort of you're not charging an initial fee. But my view is if you can't, if a client's not going to pay an initial fee, they're not going to pay an ongoing fee and they're not going to value your advice. So mm -hmm. I think you need to price your advice accordingly. Um, one of the things which, when I first started working, I was actually very on the very cheap end. And um, one of the things I did is I actually sort of increased the fees by 50% and lost 10% of clients during that period of time. And I wasn't increasing the fees to an excessive level. I was just way below par. And I, I think we need, as an industry, we need to charge what we work because if we don't, the whole thing falls down. And you know, not every client is a is going to be a suitable client for you. And uh, I think we need to sort of be conscious of that. And um, if you look at all the good financial planning businesses, they've got similar things in common. You know, you deal with financial delegators, but engage clients that are prepared to pay a reasonable fee for a reasonable service. Love it. Thank you so much for sharing. I always get so much out of just listening to you talk about the whole gamut from how to run a business. You just, uh, you just, yeah, you're just doing it the right way. Can you do me a favor? Just let me know if people want to know more about you, what you do, find out a bit about the book. Where can they go to to get more information? Oh, if you just send me an email, really, I suppose I'm uh, very, very sort of approachable. I suppose I think as an industry, we all need to sort of work together to improve the whole financial planning industry. I think we're not really competing against each other. Um, I think we've got to sort of work more together, and this is. I suppose a forum which enables other advisors to actually hopefully benefit from some of the things that, you know, what I've said. And I don't, don't profess to have all of the answers, but um, hopefully you've all learned something, hopefully. This has been awesome. Uh, is there anything else you want to add, Charles? I, I suppose one of the ethos we have in the office is proper planning prevents poor performance. So I think that's the key in everything we do. That is the uh, the clean version, isn't it? Because there's another one which is yeah, another piece. Yeah, this is a G show, Stuart. So. This is a G show, so we can't go with the actual thing. thing. Jeffrey. Welcome, Jeffrey. Says four PM drinks every Friday. That's the key. If you do one thing, <laughs> if I take you say one thing, it's four PM drinks and grab yourself an arcade game. Which arcade game is it, Charles? Does that have interest? With you actually got sixty games on it. So you've got the Frog at the Space Invaders, the Galaga, you know, the nineteen forty two, um, wow. all that sort of um, all of them. So you just we choose. So what we generally do is, if Friday the fourth balls, <laughs> we pick the fourth game. If Friday's the eleventh balls, we pick the eleventh game. So we sort of rotate it a bit. That's good. And who's uh... You're the champion at which in particular? What's your fave? Um, well, I don't have quite have the reflexes that the young ones have, so I actually struggle. I've, uh, I've won two things in uh, two years. So one was a pair of gloves, so I started calling me MacGyver, and uh, <laughs> the second thing was a, a, a coat hanger for my suits. Wow. At least you've got something useful. That's the main thing. Yes. This has been useful. What's, what's on for the rest of the, the day for you, Charles? Oh, just a pretty sort of standard day, really. Just um, a few client meetings, a bit of activity, and, uh, you know, all good, really. Um, Charles, thank you so much for sharing. I'll shoot through some notes and uh, so people can check it out. But man, this has been an absolute, absolute lesson. Thank you. No problem at all. Happy to help. Have a good day, everyone. Take it easy, Charles. I'll see you later. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that uh, episode of The Finnovator with Charles and I. Uh, I hope you agreed that sometimes I like to go and pull out some things that although they were recorded uh, a while back, uh, and for me, it's really interesting to see sort of my uh, interactions with people, how they've changed down the years. But I hope you agree there's some real stuff in there which is just as relevant today as it was back then. Uh, that's about it for me. Uh, I've got nothing else to say today other than I hope, you have a, I hope you're doing well. Uh, it's been a really tough time recently. And I know uh, I was chatting to a friend of mine who works with, uh, in, in counseling. And we were talking about the impact of having such, such intensity 
going around the world right now. Uh, and she said, she said this simple word to me, Stuart's it's called post-traumatic stress disorder for a reason. So uh, I hope everybody's keeping well. I hope everybody's keeping healthy. And I hope most of all, if, uh, if you're feeling the stress, if you're feeling the strain, if you're feeling like you just can't find your new normal, please reach out to friends, family, or if you want to have a chat with me, feel free because um, it's been a weird, weird time. Uh, but more than ever before, I think we've seen, particularly in the last few weeks, that uh, it's times like these that good advisors are at a premium and uh, long may the advice industry continue to change, evolve and grow. Most of all, I hope you've enjoyed the episode of the, uh, the ep- this episode of The Finnovator. Have a great week and I'll see you soon.